a Bible and let's turn to Zechariah chapter 7. My plan is to uh, cover both chapters 7 and 8 this morning. So pretend you just had a shot of espresso. Uh, These two chapters actually repeat many of the themes that uh, we've already discussed in more detail in chapters 1 to 6. But even more important is that chapters 7 and 8, they're one piece, one uh, unit. It begins with a handful of Jews entreating the Lord's favor. And then by the end of chapter 8, you get a bunch of nations entreating the Lord's favor. It begins with a question about fasting, and chapter 8 ends with an answer about feasting. It begins with the people's failure to uphold the covenant. By the end of chapter 8, you see a new people actually fulfilling the covenant. And so these two chapters, they, they hang together as one piece, and they convey a single message And at the risk of serious reduction, um, I've tried to summarize that message like this. You can see it in the title, uh, Past Judgment and Future Salvation Inspire Present Fidelity for Worldwide Worship. So that summary will become clearer soon enough, but for now we need to to understand the the question that rises in verses 1 to 3. I want to pray first, though, before we read. Father, uh, thank you so much for this time together in your word. Uh, it, is, it is good for us to be here over your word. Um, and, and I pray that you would cause your word to uh, quicken our hearts, to make them alive to everything that is true and beautiful and good and right, and lovely, and excellent, and worthy of praise. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's understand the question that rises first in verses 1 to 3. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sheretzer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? That's the question that initiates everything that comes in chapter 7 to 8. And their question makes a lot of sense. Uh, Ever since Jerusalem fell, Israel had a routine of fasting. Only the fifth month gets mentioned here, but by the end of chapter 8, we see that they were fasting in the the fourth and the seventh and the tenth month as well. They had a routine of fasting since they went into exile. You know, weeping over the destruction of their city, Jerusalem, crying out to God uh, for God to stop the punishment for these 70 years of exile. 
Well, now the exile is over, and uh, they're back home, and the temple is about halfway complete. It's two years have passed since Zechariah had shared his very promising night visions. And if worship was soon to be restored in the city, the people better start figuring out what's acceptable worship and what's not. Should we keep fasting or not? Seems like a good question to ask God. But there's more to this question than what's on the surface. God sees a deeper residual problem in their question. And he exposes that problem with three soul-searching questions. The first soul-searching question comes in verse 5. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And then a second soul-searching question in verse 6. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? His questions began piercing the heart of the matter. Their worship is empty if it's not done for God. Any religious act, even self-denial, I mean, they're fasting. Even self-denial is empty if it's not done for God to please Him and to honor Him and to serve Him with a whole heart. So the real question isn't so much about whether to continue fasting, but why? Can God say of your fasting and your praying and your giving and your weeping and your feasting and your traditions that it's all for Him? Apparently, he couldn't say that of Israel, which leads to one further soul-searching question, and this one probably hits the hardest because he's comparing them to the previous generation that he just judged. But in order to feel the gravity of this question in verse 7, we need to read all the way to the end of verse 14. So, first, the question in verse 7, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So notice that in verse 7, 
Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous. But now, in verse 14, the pleasant land was made desolate. What happened between verse 7 and verse 14? God's judgment happened. And the reason His judgment came upon them is that they did not have a heart for God. They refused to pay attention to God's Word. They went through the motions of worship and the motions of sacrifice and the motions of feasting and prayer and song, but their hearts were far away from God. How do we know that? Well, because their life didn't reflect God's character toward others. That's what we get in verses 9 and 10. We get a picture of God's just character working, or at least the way it should have been working, through His covenant people. Israel was supposed to be a community reflecting God's just character to the world and in their relationships with with one another. Rendering true judgments, for example, not false ones. Uh, This word kindness, that's usually the word translated steadfast love or loving kindness in some of the older translations. And it's applied to God everywhere in the scriptures to speak of his loyalty to his people. It's the essence of covenant devotion. If the people were truly fasting for God, then their lives would have reflected God's steadfast love toward each other. Another word we, hear, we see here is mercy, or sometimes translated compassion. It's comparable to the concern a mother would feel toward the fruit of her womb. It goes beyond what ought to be given, much like God's love for His people goes beyond what ought to be given. Sinners deserve nothing but punishment, but God gives up His only Son to to redeem them. He's a God of compassion. If the people were truly fasting for God, then their lives would have reflected God's compassion toward others. Uh, We even get examples of how God's Kindness and mercy would have, would have compelled uh, the people to show care for the oppressed. Uh, it mentions the widow, the fatherless, or, or the orphan, um, the sojourner, and the poor. These are people that, that don't have someone to protect them. Uh, they didn't have welfare or CPS or, or, uh, or Medicare. These were very vulnerable people. And God's compassion should have compelled the community to care for these people and take them into their homes. Uh, Isaiah had said the same thing earlier in Israel's history. He's one of the former prophets that Zechariah is talking about. He says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? It's Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 8. If the people were truly fasting for God, then their lives would have reflected care for the oppressed. As one writer put it, the true measure of any society is the way it treats those who cannot protect themselves. 
Israel didn't measure up so well. They didn't share God's compassion. Their heart didn't beat in sync with God's heart. And God is pleading with them to repent of the hypocrisy. Because the same hypocrisy characterized the generation before them. They got sent into exile. Religious hypocrisy brings judgment. The past judgment of exile should serve as an example to them and inspire them to true repentance. These three soul-searching questions that end on a note of judgment in chapter 7 are meant to recenter the people's passions on God and His glory and His justice for all. And we can learn much from this as a church, can we not? 1 Corinthians 10.11 says that these things happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We can learn from this. We can learn, for instance, that what God really wants from us is our hearts, our undivided devotion to Him. He doesn't want tears of self-pity, but brokenness over self-centeredness. He doesn't want, as Paul calls it, worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's one thing to weep over the loss of your temple or to weep over the terrible circumstances of exile, but many times such sorrow amounts to selfish regret. All that really grieves us is how bad it affected me and how hard it made my life and how negatively it affected affected my reputation. That's worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow focuses on the offense that our sins cause God. Godly sorrow is full of contrition and actually leads to repentance from sin and then to a turning toward God for forgiveness and grace to help us live in the ways that are actually pleasing to Him. So let these three soul-searching questions penetrate your heart too. Learn from past judgment. Learn from the judgment that fell on Jesus Christ in your place. That God doesn't tolerate religious hypocrisy. That is a message the cross tells us. He wants all of us, not just our rituals... God doesn't want mere outward rituals. He wants inward righteousness and love for neighbor. We can't be a people who say soli deo gloria with our lips, all the while ignoring mercy and compassion and justice for the oppressed. We can't go through the motions on Sunday and overlook the orphan and the widow and the poor Monday through Saturday. James says that religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now that's not to say we do these things in order to win a right standing before God. No amount of good deeds can make us right before God. Only the work of Jesus Christ wins us a right standing with God. But we have to remember that if God has shown us such compassion in Christ when we were helpless and lonely and not protected Should we not extend the same to others? If God adopted us as sons into His family when at one time we were strangers and exiles and aimless, how could we not at least pray about what we, about how, what we might do and how we might care for the orphan? 
we set aside money annually in our, in our budget for families to adopt orphans. Might the orphan find a place in your empty nest? Might you provide a home for the widow? Might you give your time and energy to the fatherless so that they see a godly man and learn how to love God and lead a family? If you're not able or qualified to adopt, how might God be leading you to help those who can? We're starting a ministry to the orphanage in Haiti next year, and we laid out some ways you could be involved in that at the last members' meeting. There are opportunities to preach and lead from week to week in some of the nursing homes in our area. Wes leads that, and Gary Trojak. You can talk to them for more information. Or, for example, 1 Timothy teaches us that we ought to support true widows. Are we prepared as a church to support true widows? And what I mean is prepared in heart to give generously that they might be supported one day. We even meet on the other side of the street from an elementary school. And I wonder, actually I know, that there are ways we can help with winter clothing for children who don't have any. We need somebody to call them. If that's you, come see me after service. Write it down in your worship guide and come see me. Let's talk about how we can initiate that this year. God isn't interested in superficial rituals, but a heart of compassion. And the past judgment of exile should inspire us to repent where we are failing and to obey in the present. That's chapter 7. But that's only half of God's answer to the question about fasting. The other half comes with chapter 8. And it's here that we see how future salvation also inspires present fidelity to God. Chapter 8 basically shows us that what God commands His people to be, His grace will also cause them to become. What God commands His people to be, His grace will also cause them to become. (laughs) You can't live this way on your own. We're too sinful, too self-centered. We need grace. And there's a movement to chapter chapter 7 and and, and 8. You know, He just laid them low by exposing their religious hypocrisy... That's worthy of judgment. But now he lifts them out of the dregs of their guilt and shows them what grace is actually capable of doing in them, in this community. So let's look at this future salvation, one promise at a time. We won't cover everything, but you'll get enough to see what's going on. First, we see that God returns to his city. God returns to the city. The one that we read just earlier is desolate. The pleasant land is is desolate. God returns to to this city. Verses 1 to 3. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So God's coming back to dwell with His people. 
And the promise is so sure, he can speak of it even as if it's a done deal. I have returned. And when God chooses to dwell in his city, things fundamentally change about that city. And that's what we begin seeing uh, take place, which is where another promise comes in. Uh, He makes it a new city. God shows up, he makes it a new city. Keep reading in verse 3. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Literally, Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The faithful city. The city of truth. Which is significant Because in chapter 7, verse 9, the people were supposed to render true judgment. Same word. Judgments that were faithful to God's words, that didn't show favoritism, that weren't biased. That's the way they were supposed to run the city. That's not how they ran the city. And they got sent into exile for it. Now we're getting the picture. God shows up. And when he shows up, he turns the city into the city of truth. God's presence, in other words, so sanctifies the people in the city that the city itself gains a new reputation over the way they interact with one another. That's the city of truth, the Lord's mountain. Why is it the city of truth? Well, God fundamentally changed the people in it so they relate to one another in truth. They're now rendering true judgments and righteousness. And that means uh, people play. They play in this city. That comes with another promise in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. That's a big deal. You know, old people and young people were some of the first to perish whenever a city got captured. They were the most vulnerable. But now what do we get? We get gramps and grandma living to a ripe old age and chilling in the streets with the kids playing. Who said the Bible doesn't say anything about play? One of my favorite music albums is called The Grand Narrative by Heath Hollinsby. And he has several songs that take you from creation to the fall to the atonement of Jesus Christ. And his fourth song or maybe fifth song on the album is called Covenant. And the song is about God establishing a new covenant with his people. And the best part of the song, though, is when the music fades out towards the end and you hear the laughter of children playing with their daddy. That's brilliant artistry and creativity, and it comes from places like this in the Bible. If you're a musician, help us get these things. The city is full of boys and girls playing in the streets. 
Meaning, there's no fear of people hiding in the alleyways. There's no child molestation. There's no human trafficking. Parents don't have to worry about the neighbors and the kids. Don't ever have to worry about crime. The idea is that if the old and the young enjoy the city's peace, then everybody from age to age enjoys the city's peace. All the people are dealing with each other in truth. I want to play in that city. Another promise, nobody from God's elect will be missing. God will save every one of His people and establish a new covenant with them. This is verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. So from the rising of the sun to its setting, wherever they are, I'm going to find them, I'm going to bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. You should know that language. Because it's all over the Bible, speaking of the new covenant, they shall be my people and I will be their God. It's the language of a new covenant relationship. It has to do with the barriers uh, that separate us from the, the Lord. All those barriers have have been torn down. The the sin that separates us from God uh, will be finally taken away and He will once again enter into the most intimate of relationships with His people. Hosea compares this covenant relationship to the intimate experience a wife shares with her husband. Or another promise. God reverses the curse of the law on His people and then He brings them prosperity. And simultaneously, when He brings them prosperity, He actually fulfills the covenant that He made with Abraham back in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, that they would be a blessing. Okay? So this one starts in verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you... So there's the reversal of the curse. Now verse 13, here's the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and a house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Isn't that a beautiful picture of grace? God's grace turns self-centered religious hypocrites who lacked God's compassion for others and His grace turns them into a people who are a blessing to others. It's fantastic. And, and these things are, are so beyond the people. I mean, like this uh, verse, uh, where is it? Verse uh, 7. No, it's not. Where is that? Um, that's because I'm looking at chapter 3. Here we go. Yeah, verse 6. If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight? 
declares the Lord of hosts. These things are so beyond them they're, they're, that, that they, it's like humanly impossible. Like we can't imagine those things actually happening. And God is saying, it's not too hard for me. It's not too marvelous for me. I'm God. I can do this. I can fundamentally change this place. So it's fantastic. Uh, in fact, these, these promises of future salvation are so fantastic that there's no longer any room for mourning over the past. We get this in verse 19. Verse 19 says that the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So God will do such a work of salvation that fasting will become obsolete. God will turn their times of sorrow into seasons of joyful feasts. It won't just be a few days here and there of celebration. The whole new era will become a time of celebration over the Lord's salvation. Jeremiah spoke of this day too in Jeremiah 31. He says, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. What is it that turns fasting into feasting? It is the goodness of the Lord. And the goodness of the Lord is at the heart of the people's gladness in this city. And in some sense, we have to say, according to the New Testament, that this new era of celebration has dawned with the coming of Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection victory. We certainly don't experience it all in full, but we certainly experience it by faith, this this new era that has dawned. We live in the the overlap of the ages, the, the already not yet So it doesn't necessarily mean that our fasting has stopped. Jesus and the apostles actually practiced it. And they largely assume fasting to be part of a believer's life. But never do they give a a legal prescription for how it should be done. Only that when it's done, it should be done for the right reasons and with the right motives. And I think our passage is giving us much insight. That is, when you fast, make it a time to humble yourself before God, a time to turn away from self-centeredness, and a time to ask for renewed strength to do God's will until He brings that final feast. So this is the vision He gives to His people of their future salvation. This is what His grace will make them become. This is the city to which they belong. And such a vision should inspire them to present fidelity, to passionate obedience to God. Have you ever been driving down the road and uh, you pass by a barbecue joint or something and you get the, the aroma of the meat cooking, you know, in your hands? Start to do this. 
think we're going to go back over there, dear, this time round, right? God, by giving them this vision of city, He's giving them the aroma of the age to come. He's, 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 he's giving them a whiff of their future in glory. He's, he's giving them a new appetite for what's really worth living for, and that moves their hands to start doing things and their feet and their heart to start living radically different than the way that they were living before. So, for example, in verse 13, God tells them, Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Keep rebuilding the temple, in other words. It may not be the final temple in God's kingdom, but it's still an important part of God's saving purposes. And if this is where He's taking everything, then give yourself to His kingdom purposes. Or verses uh, 16 to 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Or again, the end of verse 19. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. He's not just telling them, build the city. But change. Be this kind of people that speak truth and render in your gates judgments that are true. Rebuild the city. Change the heart. They go together. And each of these commands stand on the vision of their future salvation. Why rebuild the city? Because it's pointing to the greater city. Why live this way? Because that's the way we're going to live together in the future. Future salvation inspires present fidelity. Why love truth and peace now? Because you belong to the city of truth. That's what the future kingdom is like. That's what the cheerful feasts are about. That's what the world God is bringing will be like. That's the idea. And when you live that way, the world will want to know your God. We don't obey as an end in itself. We obey so that the nations bow the knee. And join us in worshiping God. That's what Israel was supposed to be. And that's what God says He would make Israel to be in verses 20 to 23. Peoples, it says, shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor 
of the Lord. Literally to seek his face, his smile to be upon them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And this leads us to one final point in chapter 7 to 8. And that is this. We've seen past judgment and the future salvation and how it's to motivate present fidelity. All of that is for worldwide worship. Chapter 7 began with only a handful of Jews coming to entreat the Lord's favor about fasting. You know, they're concerned with these little rituals of fasting among themselves. And God basically shows them that His purposes are way bigger than they can imagine. You know, God does this when we humble ourselves before Him. He exposes our self-centered little rituals. And then He blows us away with His future grace. Who knew that such a little question about fasting from a handful of Jews would result in such a promise of future glory and on such a global scale? And this is really, really where you and I enter the picture, church. You know, verse 23 uses that special phrase again, in those days, to speak of the future. And from the New Testament's perspective... We are the nations who have taken hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you, and that Jew's name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Literally, the Hebrew says that ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a man, a Judean. He's using categories and images known to their day to point them to the future. People from all nations will become part of God's covenant people and they will enter only by their relationship to one man from Judah, namely the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. Joyce Baldwin writes that the intensity of their desire for God is indicated by this verb, take hold of. It's used of Moses when he snatched up the serpents in the wilderness And it's used of David when he takes the lion by the beard. In other words, they can't afford to let go. This is a picture of faith. It takes hold of Jesus' robe and says, I'm not letting go. You're my only hope to find favor with God. Why is he our only hope? Because he is the only Jew whose hands are are strong enough to finish God's work. He is the only Jew who rendered true judgments. He is the only Jew who spoke truth and made for peace and did not devise evil in his heart. He is the only Jew who loved no false oath and who pleases God in everything that he does. 
And that qualifies him to be the recipient of all of God's promises. God's presence, the new city, the peaceful play, the new covenant, the blessings of Abraham, the joyful feasts, they all belong to one Jew, Jesus Christ. Because He is the only Jew who fully obeyed God. But we have to remember He obeyed God fully even unto death. You see, He didn't come simply to receive God's promises for Himself. Though He could have. He came to die that He might share God's promises with those who didn't deserve them. And that's you and me, if we trust in Him. If we unite ourselves to Jesus by faith, by giving all of ourselves to Him, that we might have a relationship with Him, all of the promises become ours as well. Jesus laid down His life to pay the penalty for your sins so that you might inherit all these promises with Him. Not apart from Him, but with Him. And He rose again from the dead on the third day so that your fasting would give way to never-ending feast. So that the sickness you feel every day over your sins might give way one day to total healing. So that the grief you feel over your hypocrisy might give way to an eternity of happiness with Him. So that the tears that fall from your eyes over the brokenness of this world like we saw in Paris over the weekend, that the tears might give way one day to unending joy. So that your gut-wrenching hatred of racism might give way to laughter and play in the streets of gold without fear. Jesus Christ is bringing that day and it could not come soon enough. But until then, let these chapters inspire present fidelity to God's Word. That more peoples, that ten men, that ten women from every tongue might grab your robe on the way to the city of truth. It's not to say you're Jesus. It is to say you're an extension of Jesus on earth while He reigns in heaven. This is the draw that our lives and our message ought to have on others. Our lives and our message ought to be one big magnet drawing all the nations to Jesus Christ. So in the same way that Zechariah charges Israel to give themselves to God's purposes, so the apostles charge us to give ourselves to God's purposes. Part of that is repentance, and we looked at that earlier. Part of that is compassion. And we looked at that earlier. And part of that is spreading the news about God's global glory in Christ. God has made a way for all peoples without distinction to approach His throne. And Jesus is that way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Christ gave His life, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And the nations are responding I finished the book of Acts this week and it ends on the, on the note of therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. 
They will listen. Read the emails from our missionaries. They are listening. They will listen. That implies a herald, namely us, to preach God's salvation to the nations. And when I say nations, I don't just mean those far away without access to the gospel. Take it there too. But I also mean the people that you share a fence with. Find ways to get into their lives and serve them and pray for opportunities to bring them with you into the city of truth. And speaking of the city of truth, what an amazing future hope to give each other daily and to give other people daily. Think of of a hundred things that are out of sync. Thousands of things that that people encounter every day that are out of sync with the city of truth. And it's a great opportunity, a great segue into the gospel to point them to the hope that we do have, the, the hope that Christ does provide for this future city. So for example, I'll just give you one example. One big topic in the news lately has been this has been systemic racism present in society, whether intentional or not. And some have wrongly responded with violence and much hatred, and others have wrongly responded by not listening or showing any sympathy towards the oppressed. But in the midst of all this, there's an evangelical pastor named Tabiti Anyabwile. And just this week, a secular magazine called The Atlantic held a summit surrounding the question of race and justice in America. And they invited Tabidi to to contribute to the discussion after he wrote a response to an article uh, that they published. And on center stage, Tabidi was able to share the gospel with thousands of listeners. And part of his message to them went like this. He says, My sort of case for hope builds on the fact that there is coming the greatest, most perfect criminal justice ever known. That when Christ comes and establishes his reign, there will be no more injustice. There will be no more crime. Everything that has been crooked will be made straight. Everyone who has transgressed his law will be held to account, and all of us will give an account on that day. And he will either stand in his judgment for our sins, or we will be forgiven. Sorry, and we will either stand in his judgment for our sins, or we will be forgiven because another has stood in our place, namely Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and was raised from the grave on the third day. And all those who trust in him will be reconciled to God and enjoy eternal life. In one sense, the case for hope requires us, particularly as Christians, it requires us to build our hope on something more permanent than the transient things of this life, to place our happiness beyond the reach of our enemies, and to see that there really is a moral arc to the universe, and it bends toward justice. In the broadest sweep, that's the case for hope. Tabidi's words point people to the city of truth that we read about today. That is our case for hope as Christians. And it's the same city that we can point others to as well. 
the city where all oppression ceases to exist, the city where all wrongs are made right, the city where peace rules forever and justice is upheld for each and every individual. So let this hope guide your tongue in public. Let this hope inspire patience with your enemies because they don't, hold, they don't determine your hope. Let this hope move you to pray, Thy kingdom come. Let this hope move your hands to work hard for the oppressed. Let this hope increase your hunger for God's final kingdom. Jesus promises us this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Why don't we pray together?